Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 52, I interview Anthony Nantes, founder and CEO of Wiser. We discuss how his life changed when a school teacher spotted his maths ability and encouraged him to apply for private school scholarships, lifting him up from a childhood of financial disadvantage. Studying philosophy and astrophysics and then going into tech consulting despite it not being the typical commerce or law backgrounds of most people in management consulting. My purpose-driven businesses, social enterprises, and not-for-profits have always resonated with him more than standard businesses run purely by the numbers. His exposure to lending that made him realise the importance that credit and a lack of credit can have on people's lives, which completely changed his perspective. Why he started Wiser as a public company on the ASX, but wouldn't wish it on any startup founders, and despite growing 199% last financial year to do over $27 million in annual revenue, he still considers Wiser to be just starting on their long-term growth journey and mission. If you're looking to make smarter money decisions, to make finance a force for good, bringing financial wellness to Australians, check out Wiser. Dot com dot au. That's W-I-S-R dot com dot au. So I'm here with Anthony Nantes, the founder and CEO of Wiser. Welcome to the podcast, Anthony. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me on, mate. Yeah, you're welcome. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Wiser? What did you study? What type of companies or roles did you work in? Yeah, so look, um, you know, the I sort of grew up uh, professionally working in consulting originally and a lot of tech consulting and um, sort of had a bit of a tech background uh, originally and then got sort of more into kind of more strategy consulting for a while, uh, a bit of M&A work and, you know, helping companies buy the company, the solo companies. And then, um, you know, got involved with it with a kind of a listed tech company. Um, and, you know, when I first joined, it was relatively small, um, you know, a few hundred employees, um, was listed on the ASX and, you know, relatively modest market cap, um, you know, in sort of the tens of millions or thereabouts. And over the course of seven or eight years, um, you know, I was part of quite a big team that grew that company um, to around about 4,000 staff. You know, we ended up having a sort of market cap around about 600 million and got bought by HP and taken off market. Um, and through that journey, I, you know, I, I held a range of different roles. So, you know, sort of ran part of the business in New South Wales, um, I helped advise on strategy and, and, and ran a PL. Um, I looked after sales and marketing for a while. So I ran sort of the marketing department, ran, ran the sales department. So it was, it was actually quite a great cross functional um, experience that allowed me to have accountability across lots of different parts of business in a very fast growing company that scaled up very, very quickly. Um, it was a different type of scale. You know, we, we scaled up mostly through acquisitions. So, you know, we were bolting on companies all the time to kind of scale it up. And, um, really enjoyed that journey. Love, you know, learned a lot about the market and, and scaling companies. And um, but, you know, as part of the the, the buy by HP, I didn't really have any ambitions to go and work in a big multinational. I really enjoyed the experience of being part of sort of scaling up a company. And you know, prior to that, I'd sort of started a couple of my own companies and scaled them up. And I'd, I'd started a couple of nonprofits and I started up uh, a couple of other 
um, businesses. And so I had some of that experience and, and really seeing something scale um, got me pretty excited. And it sort of was probably the first nail in the coffin for me about what I was going to do for the rest of my life probably. And, and that's probably building scale companies. And so, you know, I really enjoyed that. And then there was an opportunity to go and um, join a, a fairly early stage fintech company. It was my first experience in lending. So I went and joined uh, a couple of very clever founders um, as their COO um, and sort of got my first sort of taste of the lending, um, uh, you know, environment in the market. And, and that sort of led me to kind of have this vision around, you know, the opportunity in consumer finance, the opportunity to build uh, a purpose-led company that could really scale and have, have kind of impact. So, so you mentioned um, you like consulting and a lot of 20-year-olds love get the idea of consulting. But what about when you were 10 years old? You mentioned sort of side businesses. Were they teenage side businesses? Were they university side businesses? What were you sort of thinking at 10 years old? Um, did you know what you wanted to do? Um, what were those sort of early thoughts or ideas back then? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Look, I um, at, at 10, I think I was um, pretty strongly lined up to either be uh, – to, to be an astronaut primarily, and I'd probably have a backup career uh, in the NBA if I couldn't make it into space. Um, that was probably as, as, as uh, clear as my ambitions were um, at the age of 10. And, and you know, look, I, I, I've been very fortunate in my life. You know, I came from a very disadvantaged background. And, you know, at 10 years old, you know, we were having the Salvation Army deliver food to our house every week, and that's how we were surviving. And um, you know, I was being raised by a single mom, and, and, and after my parents separated, and um, you know, it was a very, very, very difficult childhood. You know, um, and living in those kind of conditions in the very far out eastern suburbs of, of Melbourne, right at the end of the train line. And um, you know, I, I got very fortunate in that you know I had a had a great teacher at primary school who probably recognised a bit of raw computing um, processing power, sort of sitting inside my my skull, and and. You know, as as grade six kind of wore around, you know, sort of convinced my mum to allow me to sit a few scholarship exams to some of the um, some of the private schools in Melbourne. And you know, for context, my, my older brother had sort of gone to the local the local high school, the local public high school, and um, you know that was where I was headed to. And got got very lucky in that I managed to sort of score a range of scholarships to um, to a bunch of bunch of high schools in, in Melbourne, you know, a bunch of the private schools, and. You know, I remember my mum took me around and she said, look, you've got, you've got a range of offers at, you know, five or six different private schools and, and you know, uh, the ability to go and actually do something different. And, but she said, said, you know, it's up to you. You can sort of make a choice about which one you want to go to. And so she took me around to a few of the private schools and um, one of them in particular had like an American-style canteen. So, you know, I was just the, the little tuck shop window, you know, at my primary school. And, and most of the other schools I looked at had something similar to it, to kind of a tuck shop window, but... I, you know, probably like a lot of us in the in the nineties, I was pretty obsessed with the states and Michael Jordan and basketball <laughs> and everything American. And they had this American style canteen where you sort of go in with your tray and <laughs> it was a proper restaurant, and that sort of convinced me. So I, I managed to, to to go along to Trinity Grammar in Kew, and I'm always very very thankful for the opportunity they gave me. And um, you know, so so managed to do my schooling at a really great school that you know, from the age of twelve, you know, I was doing a paper round every morning. You know, that was my first job. You know, up at um, up at sort of five o'clock in the morning, uh, out on the bike, or usually ten to five. You have to be the news agent by five a.m. So, as an eleven-year-old or twelve-year-old, um, that was sort of my first job, and um, you know, really enjoyed the hard work and the satisfaction of getting that that done. 
And that continued into sort of when I started school. You know, I was getting up at five o'clock in the morning. I'd go do my paper round six mornings a week. I'd get back by sort of 10 to six, have a quick shower. I'd be out the door at six because it was a two-hour commute for me to get all the way from sort of the outer eastern suburbs into, into the city to, to where the, the school was and, um, and, then, and then the two-hour trip back home at the end of the day as well. So, And was, what was that change like going from, like you said, a bit more of a disadvantaged sort of public primary school to a elite sort of private inner eastern suburb, um, you know, school? Like how did you sort of adapt? Was it, you know, different demographic, different? Obviously, like you said, you, you have the scholarships, you have the, the mathematical ability and, and, you know, so you sort of fit it in academically, I suppose, but at a cultural level, was it hard making that adaptation? Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, one of the things I did well is that there was, a, there was another um, uh, there was another student who'd been given a sort of full scholarship, with, you know, to, to that school, and and um, you know they sort of paired me up with him on sort of day one, and and he also sort of came from a background so not so dissimilar to mine as it turned out, and um, you know from day one he was like a lot of us, probably, probably the first the first friend you meet is your friend for life, uh, and he's probably been a bit like that for me, and uh, although he's travelled a very different path. Now he's he's now a monk living in a monastery um, in Asia, but he um, so I think that was really uh, grounding for me. And then look, I think from there it was a case of, and this is probably a lesson that stayed with me through my entire career, which has been, you know, the old saying of everyone puts their pants on one leg at a time, or whatever that saying is, right? I mean, everyone's just human. So I think I went in probably thinking these kids were going to be really different to me, you know, and that I that they would recognise that I was from somebody different and, and from a different background. And, you know, maybe my parents didn't have the same level of education. As, you know, they were all the, the sons of doctors and lawyers and accountants and bankers. And, and you know, I thought that would be, that'd be able to sort of recognise it, right, you know, and, and it'd be clear that I was different. But it just wasn't the case, right? And so I think that, that experience of feeling like I belonged um, to a group that I didn't really have a right to belong to to some extent, you know, that um, has served me well through my entire career. You know, I, I think that's something as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, you need to you need to have a sense of belonging. You need to be comfortable being in situations where you um, you need to adapt quickly and where you probably don't have the same experience as everyone else in the room, but you've got to, you know, you've got to work it out pretty quickly. What about once you were in consulting, like I said, tech consulting, that was a space you, you sort of started off in. Did you find you had a different perspective to some people? Like I said, in some ways, you come up through a similar channel, private schools, I imagine at top to the university, but in other ways, you know, part of your childhood was quite sort of different. Did that, again, not in a bad way, but just sort of show a different perspective than some of your peers? Or um, again, did you find you sort of you fitted in and there wasn't that much, um, you know, difference once you were in sort of a professional consulting yeah, role? I think, um, you know, at uni I studied um, philosophy and moral and ethical philosophy mainly and, and also some astrophysics um, and a little bit of computer science. And I think there probably wasn't a lot of people um, in the professional uh, and certainly in sort of finance and banking or professional who, who studied philosophy. You know, it's not a common career path choice. Um, and so, you know, one of the interesting things has always been you know, that the... the you know, a lot of people who would want to probably aspire to sort of have some of the career that I probably had probably would be looking at a commerce degree or, you know, something like that or maybe more. And I think I think not having those, you know, gave me, it was a disadvantage sometimes. You know, uh, it took me a long time to work out how to read a P&L, probably too long. Um, you know, so some of that grounding probably would have been useful a bit earlier on. But, but I think some of the perspective shifting 
um, uh, uh, that philosophy in particular gives you. Uh, I think that kind of approach um, is probably what I brought to the table early on, and that was a clear, different perspective. And I think the ability to shift perspectives to think about things um, in the way that I've been taught, you know, philosophically, um, and not even say like at first principles. You know, I think one of the things that philosophy is great in doing is teaching you how to pair back things to first principles. And a lot of problem solving, which is what most consulting is, and, and by the way, it's what most business leadership is, it's just problem solving. It, it's often just stripping away the noise to work out what the actual problem is and, and or getting back to first principles, working out at first principles, what are we actually trying to do here? What are we actually trying to solve for? And so I think, I, I think that, that that was a pretty useful toolkit. Um, and certainly as I've gone into more entrepreneurial roles and more leadership roles, you know, I think that's something I've definitely carried with me. Did it ever cause confusion at more of like a hiring manager level where they say, who's this philosophy guy? Why is he applying for tech consulting? They're expecting you to, like you said, you had a bit of a technical grounding and, and astrophysics, but, um, you know, did that raise some eyebrows or again, you just sort of self-selected for people who thought that was really interesting and, and like you said, would actually be valuable as a, a thought process versus why is someone going trying to go from philosophy and the arts to sort of the world of business? Yeah, I, th- I think it probably did to some extent. I mean, I think there's, I think self-selection is a good, a good phrase. And so, you know, I, I, I probably agree with that. And I, I think, I think that's right. I think it's quite perspective that you say that. I think there was definitely an element of self-selection, both, both in terms of kind of the type of roles that I'd be thinking about doing, um, and, and want and want to do. You know, and so if it wasn't a particularly complex kind of problem space to be in, and if I wasn't asked to be doing stuff that. Um, you know, not everyone likes working in the abstract. Not everyone likes working without clarity. Uh, and so, but, but I do. And so, I, you know, I found myself naturally gravitating to spaces where uh, and roles and companies and leaders who valued and wanted people to thrive in low data, um, you know, low kind of alpha environments where you, you, you had to um, make a lot of decisions very quickly with, with an unclear data set and, and feel comfortable and confident in doing that. And so did sort of tech consulting kind of find you in a sense, like you're applying and they found you or were you, like I said, somewhat still interested in business? You run little side businesses. You had that sort of interest. How did you go from that, what you were studying, into sort of consulting? Like was it something you wanted to do or something where someone tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, I think you'd like this? Yeah, look, I don't think I knew what I wanted to do through my 20s. You know, I, I think I was, uh, I think I was gravitating to the next available opportunity. You know, and so they, they would naturally present themselves as they do for most people sort of in that, that stage of their career. There's always that sort of the next opportunity. So you've always got a mind to the next opportunity. Certainly the, the world of business, as you call it, isn't something that I was ever gravitating towards. And it wasn't, it wasn't my inclination. I mean, actually quite a few, most of the startups and businesses that I got involved with building earlier on were all either, quite a few of them were not-for-profits or they were, um, you know, they were for profit but with a purpose behind them. So a lot of the things that I was trying to do were more about solving the problem. And even the ones that I built that or got involved with running or scaling or failing at, which were about make, you know, were about profit. It was not, it was not the business side of it that attracted me to building that company. It was the, it was the problem that we we're trying to solve. And, and I'd sort of get more motivated by saying, hey, that's a good problem to solve. Let's work our way to solve it. Um, and, and if we solve it well, then you know the rest of it will take care of itself. 
And did that, again, was there any adjustment going from, like I said, social enterprise, not-for-profit sort of space into finance and banking or that scale-up that you were part of that um, listed and eventually got acquired by HP? Were they, again, more sort of purpose-focused than the stereotypical average sort of financial institution? No, so I'd say that it wasn't a particularly for-purpose-driven company. In fact, it was it was probably more slide the other way. It was a very, you know, company that was run by the numbers and really focused on... Uh, you know, and, and when you're running a roll-up strategy, it's really about do the numbers work, right? If you're going to buy, if you're going to acquire another company, acquire. And I think, you know, we acquired something like thirty odd companies over the seven or eight years that you know it was there. You know, it really is about do the numbers work um, for for this acquisition and, and does this kind of a roll strategy work? And it was definitely a company that was run by the numbers. I think that contrast was really good for me. You know, I think you know, like like most things in life, balance is important. So. There's very rarely a right way and there's very rarely, you know, one view of truth and reality is subjective almost in its entirety. So I think you need to have, you know, so for that perspective shifting ability, you've got to have balance. You've got to be out of, you've got to find that happy middle ground of, you know, bringing all these worlds together to really make a company truly successful. And in the way that I would think about a company being successful, You've got to you've got to walk all these paths at the same time and find the way that they all these worlds come together. Um, because if you get too off to the side in one or the other, you're likely to fall off that off that path and and down the cliff. Yeah, and so you've worked in like I said a few different social enterprises, startups, um, then in finance, had that big sort of run up and success. What made you want to go out on your own and start Wiser? Um, was there a particular moment that sort of triggered that decision? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, you know, the role previously, right before I sort of um, ventured out into Wiser was, was, in a, was in a lending business. I was doing small business lending and, and it was my first foray, you know, I was there as a COO, uh, it was my first foray into lending at all into the world of finance, really. I, I'd done some consulting into banks over the years, but, but nothing like this where, you're, you know, you're holding a leadership role and, and really seeing the ins and outs. And, you know, one of the things that struck me so clearly very early on is just how big of an impact the provision of credit has on an individual or, or the non-provision of credit, you know. Um, credit as, as, a, as a force in our culture and our society is incredibly impactful. And I think I, think I wasn't aware of it previously. And so as, as that started to open that world up to me of seeing just how much credit mattered, um, it, it started opening up the world of impact for me as well and started to make me understand that actually... Um, you know, the provision of credit and doing it well and doing it in a way that treats people with respect and, and gives them a great experience can be incredibly impactful. And it's so fundamental to the life of everyday Australians that that really started the, I guess, the cogs turning for me out saying, hey, you know, I think there's a really big opportunity here. You know, the, the types of things I was starting to see that could be possible was so far from my experience of dealing with the banks or dealing with anyone in finance that I started to see, I guess, Envisions a much better world or a much um, a much different type of industry that might might be possible in this space. And was there a moment where you saw someone uh, was given credit and they were able to completely sort of transform, or, or the reverse? Someone was denied credit and really sort of shut the door on something they were sort of trying to do personally or in a small business context. Look, you know, for, for better or worse, I think I saw the full gamut, and that was great. You know, as a COO, you know, I was sort of right in the operation, the daily, the daily operations of sort of lending. And so what I did see was just that full gamut. So I saw people who, you know, were desperate 
for someone to believe in them and and and, and you know give them a chance to, to you know with some credit that it might allow them to do something that was really important in their life and not being able to do it and I saw people you know the joy of people who who did get that opportunity and were able to get access to credit and go and do something that really mattered to them and then and then I also saw the the dark side of credit and debt and lending you know and I got to ex- see what it meant when things went wrong and, and how how a company reacts and responds and and how the people inside a company behave and what's important to them can have such an impact and so on, which is one of the most stressful things that can happen to an individual. So I think that that full gamut of experience really couldn't have been a better primer for me to, to set me up and say, actually, I want to enter this world of consumer finance, which is different to what I was doing. I mean, we're doing business lending, which is a little bit different, but um, you know, it really gave me this, this passion to say there's a really big problem space here to go after. Yeah, and... Um... So what was, you, you make the move, you start the company, and what was the first sort of 12 months like? Yeah, look, the first, the first 12 months, I mean, we, uh, it's never easy for anybody, right, those first 12 months. Um, you know, we had, some, we had a few advantages uh, and then we had some really big disadvantages at the same time. So, you know, the, 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 the beginning for, for, for Wiser was, you know, we, we, we took over a listed shell you know, of a company that had tried to launch as a peer-to-peer company on the ASX with a backdoor listing and, and, you know, sort of raised a bit of money at 20 cents. That company has kind of extensively failed. Um, the share price had run down to two or three cents. It had a market cap of $5 million and had about $5 million of cash sitting in this shell. And, and so when I actually first went to, you know, the first major fund that I took the, the, the idea for Wiser to, um, he actually was a major shareholder. Um, in, in that shell and it was him who sort of initially just said well why don't we rather than doing something here's a startup and us trying to fund it what we've got five million dollars of cash in this entity why don't we use that as, as a starting place for for this idea of yours and, and we can sort of launch from there so um you know this is something i'd never wish on anyone as, as a startup founder is to start your company as a startup on the asx it's a, it's an incredibly bad idea right and and in hindsight uh, you know, I don't know what I was possibly thinking. But yeah, because, I mean, a lot of people would say even for, you know, 100, 500 million revenue company, the compliance burden is extreme, the regulatory um, stress and pressure and cost. Um, so, so why did you do that reverse listing and, and go public from sort of day one? Yeah, look, there was a, there's a couple of reasons. One is, you know, the world was very different then. Right? We're talking back, back in 2016. I know it doesn't seem like that long ago, you know, six years ago, but in the world of VC and tech funding in Australia, that is an eon ago. Right? Back in 2016, there was hardly a VC in Australia. You know, you, you, the, the notion of raising, doing multiple rounds of multiple millions in Australia uh, as, as a tech company, well, well, there wasn't really a roadmap for that at the time. Right? There was a couple of examples and a bit of private money floating around, some family office, and there's a couple of VCs just starting out, but they didn't really have a track record and they certainly weren't well funded. And, and so it wasn't, there wasn't really a truly viable alternative. And then, you know, I had a very clear business plan of what I wanted Wiser to achieve, which, which meant being very honest and open with investors saying, you know, we're going to need to raise 60, 70, 80 million dollars. And I want to take on the big four banks, you know. And, and by the way, if you're going to start a company, and say, I'm going to take on the four biggest brands in Australia who are the most well-known, who are the most capitalised, who have the most to fight for. It's not the normal fight you, you sort of go after, right? And, and then you combine that with a really big capital requirement, you know, building a lending company 
you've got multiple pools on your funding. So you're not just funding your OPEX and working capital. You've also got to fund all your loans and debt. And so you've got that fund. So you've got double the funding requirement to, to, to most kind of startups. And, and I was very clear on the path through and how much we needed to raise. And so other than the public market, you know, the, the, the notion of raising 50, 60, 70, $80 million over several years in Australia in 2016 just wasn't viable in the private market, really, right? Not, not to my worldview anyway. You know, others have since proven that that was possible sort of in the years after. And so, you know, I was probably wrong with that. But at the time, that was my thinking. I, I was probably also fortunate enough that, um, you know, as a mate of mine, Larry Diamond, who started Zip Money, he'd recently done it sort of the year before a similar type of path for similar types of reasons. You know, so the capital requirement that he needed, and, and you know, um, you know, had sort of done pretty pretty well in terms of listing Zip on the ASX, the backdoor listing, and grown and raised capital successfully. And so there was a bit of a blueprint for success for me for a company like Wise, although obviously we're quite different to, to Zip. But you know, I think there was a bit of a blueprint of a company that was in the fintech space that was raising significant money in the public market, was doing it well and, and growing and scaling. And so, um, you know, that that was the path that we took. Um, you know, that, that first 12 months was, you know, obviously there was a bit of a steep learning curve for me as a CEO uh, running a public listed company. So, you know, getting my head around that. And again, I was lucky to be surrounded by a lot of um, patient people and, and, and good advisors and, and some really great talent inside the company. Um, and, and then just the, the, the growth, you know, just getting the first 12 months for us really wasn't about growth. It was really about getting the house in order. You know, if you, and if you look at the kind of the way we grew the company, the first 12 months, we sort of got, got all our ducks lined up. It was very behind the scenes. You know, we didn't really do much. You know, we just sort of floated along and, and we raised a little bit more capital. Um, and, and mostly it was all done behind the scenes. And then it was really into that second year where we really then had things lined up, ready to go, um, and, and started putting some petrol in the tank for the first time. And, and off we went. So you mentioned you're ticking along, you take on the complexity of being public straight away, but it sort of made sense at the time. And then you've had a massive growth spurt, growing 280% last financial year, um, doing uh, over $27 million annual revenue, becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. So what was the driver behind that rapid growth and what was it like sort of on the, on the ground managing you know, that sudden sort of growth and uh, expansion? Yeah, that's... Look, it's been um, it's certainly been a, been a big journey, right? You know, from a from coming to the, what was the time a five million dollar market cap to start with, up to kind of three fifty, three eighty million dollar market cap. You know, over the period as, as we kind of reached one of our peaks, and so you know, I think um, you know we you know, revenues growing something like six hundred seventy five percent over the last couple of years. You know, we've we've engaged with you know a couple of million Australians across the various platforms and services and tools that we have, and and so it's certainly been um, quite quite a wild ride for the last few years in terms of scaling, scaling the company, something really impactful. Um, you know, we've now done over a billion dollars worth of lending, um, and and continue to grow and scale scale the company. And and so, you know, what's what's driven that? Look, I think there's a couple of things. You know, one is building a purpose led company. You know, we sort of talked about that a little bit before about sort of you know the problem that I was trying to solve initially, but. We started Wiser with a purpose around improving the financial wellness of everyday Australians. And you know, that purpose has been ingrained in what we've built from day one. And you know, again, it might say, you know, financial wellness is a bit of a, a buzzword right now, but six years ago when we started, 
you know, I think we were probably, if not the first in Australia to be talking about it, we're certainly there or thereabouts. And 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 building a purpose-led fintech wasn't something that kind of existed, you know, in Australia. It wasn't it wasn't the types of fintechs, you know, whilst there's a big wave of energy and investment into fintech, they were typically, you know, I'd say um, doing something that already existed, like, you know, with, with a bit of slightly better tech by and large, right? They, they weren't really, really trying to change dynamics. So I think building a purpose-led company that really had a genuine focus on um, the financial wellness of the community in which we worked was really important. I think it's been one of the things that's driven our growth. You know, it allows, it allows our staff to really lean into what we are as a company, the why of why they come to work, like why do they do what they do. It allows our customers to really lean into us as a, as a brand. You know, we stand for something, you know, we, and, and they know that they can trust the way we behave, the way we structure our company to, to be in their best interest. You know, we always put the interests of our customers first. Um, and what's and, a practical example? Like, you know, obviously the, the big financial institutes have very big marketing budgets and, and tell great stories around their, their mission and their purpose and their service. But what, what's something in a sort of practical sense where you said, here's something that's not in the customer's interest, it's not right in the industry, and it, we're going to do it differently to solve that sort of issue? Yeah, so look, a great example is actually helping people pay off their loans faster, right? So, and that sounds really silly, right? Almost when you say it out loud, but like it's, it's you know, you think about the dynamic of borrowing money, you know, and, and the incumbents, the way they behave, they certainly don't try to incent you to try and pay off those loans any faster. You know, the longer you have that loan out, the more money they make. Mm, and, and there's so, penalties and fees. And if you pay too much too early, they get angry and, you know, yeah. Exactly. So, th- so exactly, penalties and fees. So, you know, things like, if you pay off your loan early, um, you know, they charge you a fee for, for the for the you know the joy of paying off your loan faster. And then the reason for that is because they had a certain amount of revenue and margin they wanted to make off you as a customer, and you paying it off early hurts their, their revenue. So they have to charge you a fee to make some of that money back. But they the money they expected to make from you, right? So so we did things very early on, which were very counter that. So we charged no fees, no monthly fees. No early repayment fee, but we also went a step further than that. We actually built an app to help people round up their spare change and actually pay off their loan faster. Now, we, we know that if we actually help all of our customers pay off their loans faster, we're going to make less margin than, say, a bank would because we'll make, you know, the loans will be out for, 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 less, for a short amount of time and so we'll make less revenue and less return. But our view has always been we're going to build a much, much bigger company as a result of doing the right things by customers. So those kind of practical examples, you know, we enter the market saying, we're not going to charge you a monthly fee. We're not going to charge you an early repayment fee. And actually, we're going to try and help you actually pay off this loan quicker. We're going to give you tools and apps and services and tips and budgeting ideas and ways to actually help you pay off this loan as fast as you can. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's pleasing to see some others, you know, the last couple of years have started to follow suit and, you know, emulate some of the things we started out doing. Um, and ultimately, that's sort of, you know, what, what we'd like to see is, is more of that across the industry. And so I think that's probably a good couple of practical examples in terms of, you know, that journey. I think the other thing that's probably been true the whole way through is just being very clear on making it a really great place to work. So, you know, that, that genuine care I talk about for our customers and really think about when we build a product and design a product, we really think about what's actually in our customers' best interests. So with our loan product, for example, well, we started with the idea of saying, well, actually, the thing that's in our customer's best interest is not charge them a monthly fee. 
not charge them a fee to pay it off quicker and actually try and incent them to actually pay it off faster. That's actually in their best interest. So that's how we built the product. Um, but I think that same uh, passion for doing the right thing by people sort of has fallen into the company too. So we have that same passion for doing the right thing by our employees. And, and you know, you know, I've seen, in the, you know, recently in the last couple of weeks, you know, we rewarded the um, second best place to work in Australia by the AFR. And, and, and I think even more pleasingly, you know, the, the number one company in Australia is the most outstanding practice for diversity and inclusion. So the number one company in Australia for diversity and inclusion. And, and we've regularly, the last three or four years, we've top, you know, we've been in the top 10 consistently as one of the best places in Australia to work. Um, and I think that's also fundamental to kind of growing and scaling a company like ours. That, you know, if you, if you want to do the right thing by your customers, we'll start by doing the right thing by your employees. Uh, and then that, that flows through very, very naturally. And that's like, you know, that's your question. That's a kind of the practical side of it too, right? If you're going to be, it wouldn't be, I think, tenable to be really honestly trying to do the right thing by your customers and having your employees feel like they're not getting a great experience as well. You know, that, that would cause, not jealousy, but like it, would, it wouldn't mesh, right? And you'd get employees who are disgruntled and saying, well, why are we always doing this right thing by this customer when, I, when I'm being treated like this or, or I'm not getting, you know, this type of care and, and genuine passion for my well-being? Yeah, it wouldn't so be congruent, we, would it, if the ones who right. have the most almost at stake that who work there and it's a full-time job versus a, a customer. And, and so are there any other things you did at the employees, so internal facing? Obviously, you've got the mission, you've got the purpose, you treat the customers right, which it makes people feel good about working there. Was there any other sort of, you know, innovative or maybe slightly less common things that you did from an employee recruitment, staffing point of view that sort of maybe atypical in the industry or within sort of broader businesses that you've seen? Yeah, look, I, I mean, there's, there's, there's actually a huge gamut of things that we do, which are fairly atypical. You know, I think, um, you know, I, I think, you know, I can point to kind of small examples of things we do that show kind of the the care and compassion we have for our employees. But I think it's it's not one of those things. It's 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 not one big thing, you know, and I, I think that's what we've done well. We've not tried to sort of hang our hat and saying there's one big thing we do, you know, whether it's flexible working, whether it's, you know, um, the, the way we structure roles, the way we incent, the way we reward, um, the way we talk in terms of the transparency that we have as a company um, right from the top all the way through. Um, it's I think it's, we don't hang our hat on one thing. It's, it's we do all these little things and it's in the little things that our employees feel that passion and that care for them, you know. Um, just, and there, there can be little small, silly things, you know, like when COVID first hit and we all got sent home to work from home for that first week. You remember that time, right? It was super stressful. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a couple of things we did in that first week and it was, and that was, you know, after your character is kind of defined by those moments when you're under pressure. And so I think, it's, it's a good practical example, I guess, of how Wiser responded in that moment when everyone got sent home very quickly to work from home. Um, everyone was really nervous. Everyone was a little bit scared. Everyone was a little bit afraid. People were very uncomfortable. Most people couldn't work from home. They had dogs and cats and kids and kitchen tables with roommates and, you know, laptops strung all over the place. And, um, and we saw, you know, cost finance and banking and particularly in our space, you know, most people were either doing, you know, either removing 20% of their workforce straight away or they're asking people to take pay cuts, right? We came out the first week and told all our staff, we're not losing anybody and nobody's taking a pay cut. And so we, we, wanted, to, we wanted to show that we we're going to take care of it, like through the most trying time that we could have, 
through a crisis. We didn't we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, no one had a crystal ball in that first couple of weeks of COVID, so we had no way of knowing how long it was going to go for, what the impact was going to be. But we were very firm um, as a leadership group of um, taking away, removing some of that fear from employees, saying you're all going to be taken care of. No one's losing their job, and and no one's going to be able to take a pay cut. We're going to manage through this, and then. You know, so that's sort of a couple of small things we did, and that's probably a bit of a big thing. And then, you know, that first week when everyone was working from home, that first Friday, uh, we had a team uh, of leaders get online and do an Uber Eats of ice cream to every single person in the company on the Friday afternoon. So we delivered ice cream to everyone in that very first week, the very first time everyone was working from home. And just after lunch, we had ice cream arriving for every single person in the company. And, you know, it was the leaders who sat there, you know, through the afternoon and, and worked together to, to, you know, get all their Ubers going and getting all the addresses and, um, you know, this whole range of hilarious moments where Ubers were knocking on the door of our staff, saying, I've got ice cream for you. And our staff were saying, well, I didn't order anything, so take it away. <laughs> yeah, think it was for the neighbour or thinking there yeah, was a exactly. mistake. or uh, Okay. And, and so you've got this different model. It's purpose-led. It's, um, you know, you're a non-bank lender. Um who was sort of harder to convince? Was it the investors and explaining, hey, we're different to, like you said, the, the four of the six biggest companies in Australia, we're different, but we're still a good investment. And was it the public markets or was it the customers and saying, hey, no, we're not trying to trick you. There's no trick. There's no fees. There's no this. And they're sort of maybe they've been burned by um, bad financial experiences. Who was sort of more skeptical or harder to sort of explain when you do something different? You know, like sometimes it's hard because people, even though they don't like the status quo, they're used to it. And there's a skepticism of something new. And so who did you find? Or was it an education piece on both sides? That's it. It's, look, it's a really interesting question to ask. I mean, I think that the, the different um, the different problem sets, like to each one of them, to like what kind of conversation. I think from a customer's point of view, it was probably easier. I think customers, Australians have always known they're getting a really bad deal from the bank. I mean, there's an Australian who doesn't know that, right? Um, you, Every Australian gets a bad deal from the big four banks, um, no matter what you do with them, right? They, they are always, the big four banks are never the highest payers in deposits and they're never the lowest rates for home loans, you know? So they're never like, you know, the best outcome for it. And from an experience point of view, you know, everyone knows they're typically not getting a great experience. So Australians aren't that hard to convince on the fact they haven't been getting a good deal, right? So I think that side of it, Australians have innately known there's probably, someone should probably do better than this. There's there's probably a smarter, fairer, wiser way for for this to be done. And so I think just putting that in front of them has been kind of a bit easier because it sort of makes sense, right? You know, if you're a consumer and you're thinking about taking out a loan and you get these two alternatives put in front of you, one of them just makes more sense, right, to to you as as an individual. And so I think that, that was sort of easier for us. Is the um, battle on that side then just awareness, just making people realise, hey, there's another option, there's more than four banks? Was that the biggest challenge, just kind of um, a, a marketing and branding point of view? Yeah, it's, it still is. I mean, if you look at, I mean, we've, you know, we've been out for six years and we're growing a great company that's scaling up well, right? But the reality is if you look at consumer finance in Australia, 80% of all consumer finance is still written by the big four banks. So there is a, there is a laziness tax happening in Australia where Australians just, sort of, they kind of all know, you know, if, if you've got a home, if you want to listen to this, if you've got a home loan with one of the big four banks right now, you, you should definitely refinance that loan to someone else because you can save tens of thousands of dollars going refinancing that loan somewhere else. And, and, and same with consumer debt, right? Um, so the, so I think part of it is awareness and, and getting that kind of motivation. I think, um, you know, because of the, 
the, the lending that we do, um, you know, personal loans are typically tied to something someone's trying to do in their life. They're often in a decision moment. And, and so, you know, it's a good, it's a good point in time to, to kind of reach them and talk to them. I think the interesting thing is that, you know, you asked about the, the hard sell with the investor community in the market. I, look, that's definitely been the case. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's huge amounts of research that show that purpose-led, genuinely purpose-led companies outperform non-purpose-led companies something like three times, you know, by, by three times the kind of the outcome and impact, you know, from a shareholder return perspective, you know, significantly better outcomes from companies that are purpose-led. But it's, it's still rarely a narrative that's happening in the market. You know, company investors, the market the, is very rarely asking, what's the purpose of this company? What are they trying to? Why do they exist? You know, those, even, even though the research and the data tells us that actually if you have a really strong aligned purpose, that, that it's going to matter. So that, that's an ongoing battle for me probably is, you know, just, but, but the reality is I think, we've, um, I think we've been so resolute internally that this is the type of company we want to build. And we've been so long-term in our thinking always. We've always, we've never really worried as much about the next quarter or the next year. We are very much thinking about five to 10 years from now all the time. And so we know that it will play out in the right way. We know that if we keep doing the right thing by customers, as I said before, even if we make slightly less margin, we're actually going to build a much bigger company as a result. Yeah, and, and I imagine it's part of it also attracting, you know, purpose-led sort of investors, right, which is a growing segment and purpose-driven EFTs and super funds, institutional-level investors, where if you can offer that over time, as that becomes a bigger um, sort of uh, money mover in the market, they will gravitate towards a business like yours versus a traditional 80% of profits as dividends and consistent, predictable um, scale versus, you know, a purpose-led portfolio. Yeah, it's true. To, you know, one of the issues there is like that, you know, the mandates and the definition they're using for impact are so narrow at the moment, right? It's that it's often it, it often forces them to have to invest in like some type of environmental company, um, you know, or, or, or some very narrowly focused bands which will fit the criteria for what they're considering as impact and purpose. You know, trying to trying to educate that's part of the market is actually something like debt and consumer finance, right, um, is so, um, it's so ubiquitous in Australia and it's so ingrained in our social fabric that actually doing it the right way is a huge for-purpose thing. It's a, it's a hugely impactful thing. Um, even if it might not tick some very narrow bands around when they're thinking about an ESG portfolio, thinking about kind of impact in a very narrow way, right, versus saying actually if we provide some really fundamental services and offerings with a much better experience that actually has potentially much more impact on an everyday Australian than um, in some other models. So, so it's almost like the pendulum's gone too far. At one point it was, you know, greed is good, profit at all costs, market cap growth. And then they're saying it's almost swung too far. It's so stringent that a lot of good for-purpose companies might be underinvested in because the, the criteria is almost too narrow. Look, I, I don't know if the pendulum's but I think at the moment, I think that's, you know, that, that that's a very... It's a, it's a very early stage, you know, market, right? So it's it's a very early stage in its maturity. The ESG market has to find its feet. You know, obviously it's a bit more advanced in the US. I think you're seeing in the US that, you know, as these mandates get more funding and as they need to start deploying more funds, they have to start looking a bit broader and they have to start opening up the definition of what real ESG, you know, what real social good, social, you know, strong 
social governance really looks like and, and impact really looks like. And so that's forced them, you know, as, as they need to invest and deploy more capital, they've had to look a bit broader about purpose. And I think we're not quite there yet in Australia, but, but I think it'll come. Yeah, I guess I have to start narrow. That's kind of the whole point. Otherwise, if they had a big, you know, half the companies were in their bucket, like it would defeat the purpose. It's got to be hyper narrow and then broaden out over time. And so is that, again, an ongoing educational piece for you to explain to people? Because I imagine some people just think debt is bad. All debt is predatory. It's just kind of it's a necessary evil. But explaining, like you said, your experiences where you can see it actually unlock opportunities and a brighter future. And like you said, people, big decision points in their life. How do you go beyond, you know, just helping people manage their finances better in sort of, uh, you know, I guess, opening people's mind a bit on, on the role and value of debt? Yeah, look, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interlaced and emotional topic, debt, right? And it's, a, and it's quite controversial in a lot of ways. I mean, look, you know, to be really honest, if you'd asked me, you know, five or six years before I, you know, started Wiser, would you ever run and build a lending company? I would have said absolutely not. You know, I would have had that same perception of, you know, lending, lending isn't good. You know, and, and lending, you know, lending isn't something I wouldn't have, would have wanted, would have thought that I would wanted to, to be involved with. You know, the reality is, you know, access to fair credit and access to reliable credit is one of the things that separates the first world from the third world. You know, there's lots of things that. There's lots of things separate first world from the third world, but access to credit is actually one of the fundamental things, right? In the third world, there isn't a system, a social system and a government system that um, allows people to access credit. People don't trust other people to pay them back because of the type, lack of infrastructure around, around that. So it's very hard for people to better themselves. It's very hard for someone who needs help right now to say, actually, you can rely on the next five years of my income. And you can rely on that. And so you can actually help me do something right now. And I want to pull forward a bit of my income for the next few years because this thing that I, you know, buying this car for my family so that I can travel to this job is, is really important. Or buying the second car, you know, with our kids so that we can get them to school, you know, between the two of us working is really fundamental for us as a family right now. We can't wait five years to be able to afford it. We actually need to do it now. And so that type of opportunity doesn't exist in the third world necessarily. And so we can to some extent, take it for granted. Growing up in a country like Australia, you know, we've only known credit, right? The reality is in Australia right now, if there wasn't a credit system, no one would ever buy a house. Like, how could you with the pricing of houses in Australia right now, right? Like, it's only for the existence of a credit system that anyone here will ever afford property and their own home, buy, be able to buy their own home. And so I think as I, as I went on my own personal journey of understanding more of that, you know, it made me really understand um, just how important this is. And if you look at, you know, look at the stats, look at the research, right? You know, um, financial stress is the number one cause of stress in Australia. So of all stress, 60% of all stress is made up of financial stress. And, and guess what the number one cause of financial stress is? Debt, right? It's the mismanagement of debt, the misapplication of debt, the inability to manage or, or, or have a conversation around debt and finances or the inability to access credit. Right? It's also hugely stressful for someone who has a cash flow issue in their life right now and no one will rely on the next few years of income to, to allow them to fix whatever the problem is in their life right now. And so, you know, that and that has huge flow-on effects, right? You know, financial stress is no one cause of stress, flows, has huge flow-on effects to suicide, to domestic violence rates, you know. A lot of those are triggered by, 
by financial stress and, and an inability to manage debt or an ability to manage cash flow and, and, and budgeting issues in a family home. And so I think really lining up behind alleviating some of that we, where we can and actually providing a significantly different experience um, is hugely impactful. I think coming back to your other question, though, about the, the um, I guess, the market and the perception of it, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the number of times I've sat in front of big investment managers have asked me, why don't we extend our loan offerings into high interest rate loans? You know, all, all of the wise loans today are by and large better than what you get from, from a bank. Uh, you know, on average, all of our loans are um, uh, better rates than the big four banks and certainly cheaper than what you get, say, from something like a comparable credit card debt at 22 23%. But obviously, you know, we, you can make more money by charging higher interest rates. And so that, that conversation is one that I've had, you know, quite a lot with, with different parts of the market, you know, saying you guys could be a lot more profitable, you guys could make a lot more money uh, if you charged higher interest rates and entered in these other markets. And, you know, very kindly and gently, I've got to talk to you about what our long-term vision is as a company, what we stand for as a company and as a brand and the purpose of the company and, and you know, how, how those types of products, those more predatory types of lending just don't line up behind what, what we're trying to do. And uh, I mean, has anyone tried to use that sort of philosophical argument on you? Hey, payday lending, if someone's three days short of their paycheck, if you're able to lend them, even if it is a 400% um, you know, annual fee, like you know, if you annualize it, but that three days could be the difference between like some financial hardship. Has anyone kind of pushed that? Or again, you've got a, an underlying philosophy that no, it's fundamentally unfair. It traps people in a, a system. It's better to provide them other options than, you know, super high interest sort of payday loan that, again, could be seen as good for someone, but really the industry and the way it's run and long-term and, and the data shows that it's not actually the right sort of move to help people in that sort of category. Yeah, look, this this is a very murky space we're entering, right? And I think, you know, the, the, the there's absolutely a place. You know, I said before, provision of credit, access to credit is so important. And so I welcome the ability for people to access credit when if they, you know, if a family's really struggling and, and they're not particularly, um, you know, they, they don't have a particularly strong credit profile and they're, they're probably not someone that wise would fit kind of wise's typical lending, but they've got, you know, the weekly shop just done and it's in the fridge and the fridge is just broken and they need a thousand dollars today to fix their fridge. Otherwise the whole, you know, month's groceries go down the door and, and you know, they're going to really struggle for, for several months. You know, I, I want that family to have access to instant credit, you know, for, for that purpose. Now, how do you guardrail that part? You just say, well, it's it's for those times, you know, not because it's a Friday night and you want to buy a few more rounds of drinks or, you, you know, there's a couple of extra pairs of shoes you've just seen online that you want to purchase, right? And let's just, just let's take every time I buy a pair of shoes or every time I buy a T-shirt, I want to, I want to access some credit to do it, you know? So I think that, that, that the murkiness of that space is the reason why we're not in it. But, but I do welcome, you know, I think a broad credit environment is good and healthy for all Australians um, and, and important for, for our community. Yeah, so, so if we zoom out a bit away from your specific business and the um, fintechs and industry, what, what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia more broadly? You know, what, what do you see Australian entrepreneurs and other businesses across multiple different categories and verticals doing really well? And then where do you look at sort of other overseas markets and see opportunities that some Australian businesses aren't yet sort of capitalising on? Yeah, I mean, you know, as we talked before about, you know, I guess our journey, or I guess my journey through 
you know, back in back when we started six years ago, you know, I didn't see a clear path for sort of funding and, and, and VC and multiple rounds of funding, you know, getting through a through through a seed round and then an A and B and C with larger check sizes each time. So clearly that 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 started to emerge and, and there's clear precedent uh, for that now. So that's obviously one of the things we've done well. But you know, we're talking about in the last five or six years, we've really had that emergence. And so, you know, I think this type of growth is, is a multi-generational type of play. I think one of the things that we need and we're starting to see sort of the edges of is that first wave of, of talent that has done well and exited out of the companies that probably didn't have clear paths for funding and everything had to fight and scrap. When they start investing back to that next generation, that starts to become really, really powerful. You know, it's, it's, and it's, I think the way entrepreneurs and, and ex-founders reinvest back is very different to the traditional, you know, they, um, they have a very different investment philosophy. And I think that really changes the game and will change the game in Australia. And we're not quite there yet. You know, you can point to kind of almost on one hand, the number of really prominent, you know, ex-founders in, in, outside of Canva and, and Afterpay and Atlassian, you know, the, the list gets pretty thin. Uh, after Nick Mel and, and, and Simon and uh, so, sorry Scott and uh, Mike, right? After those four, the list gets pretty thin pretty quickly, right? But that, that's starting. It's starting that reinvestment back. Um, and the reason why that's um, really important, and that's where other markets are really so far ahead of us, right? So you look at someone like the US; they've been doing this for so much longer that they've got they're on their third, fourth, fifth generation of talent, right? And so you've got generations before, you know. And I'm talking about kind of business life cycle generations, right? Not human generations. So, you know, let's say it takes sort of 10 years to get a company fully up and scaled and, 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 and you know, so so every sort of eight to 10 years, you might get this reinvestment cycle as, as people exit. Well, like and, you and said, really- HP, right, who bought your previous employer, you know, they were sort of seeded, I think, in the sort of 40s, 50s and, yeah, you know, and then right. obviously invested in companies and then they the companies they invested in invested in sort of the hardware, which invest in the software, which you know, now invest in the next. But, yeah, it's just those business generations haven't occurred yet in the same way in Australia yet. Yeah, and I think that's right. Look, and, and America obviously has just, a, the, you know, all the way back to the Rockefellers and the, and, and the Fords, right? You can go back early in the 40s, you know, of real, you know, groundbreaking new world entrepreneurial talent. And, and certainly the Fords and the Rockefellers and many others, you know, the, the Carnegie's and all the ones all the way through, you know, they, they all reinvested back, right? And, and I think... So, but I think in particular, you know, I think that's the kind of the long, but I think in the, in the, the more in the tech founder entrepreneur sense of this, you know, this last, you know, 20 or, 20 or so years, um, you know, since the kind of the start of the 2000s, the US and other markets has this multi-generational growth. And, and why that's really important is that founders invest in founders in very different ways, right? You know, founders, ex-founders who have done well and exited, um, when they're looking for investment, they, they are backing a founder and they're backing and supporting a founder with a vision. And they really understand very dynamic around what it takes to grow and scale business. And they're looking for different outcomes to a, to a true, you know, sort of a nice parallel from an early part of the conversation around the, the, the numbers versus the, the purpose and the vision, right? You know, if you're just running these investments by the numbers, a lot of them don't stack up and it's a very different type of investment mentality. I think as you get second, third, fourth generation founders exiting uh, and then reinvesting back, and by the way, that cycle is a lot quicker in other spaces. Like in the crypto cycle, that's like a two-year cycle, right? You know, and, and which is amazing. You know, one thing I love about the crypto space is this multi-generational facet of reinvestment 
happens on like an 18-month, two-year cycle where these guys do really well, girls do well and exit and, and reinvest back. So, look, I think that's that's starting to happen in Australia and that, that's great to see. And the, the more ex-founders we get sort of backing other founders, I think that, that actually really helps. Look, where, where we're doing really well, I think it's super obvious, right? It's, there's just a complete lack of diversity and inclusiveness around entrepreneurship and, and um, you know, the, the growth of founders in Australia. You know, it is just so unfortunately white and male and you know i'm, I'm one of those um but it, it's so predominantly white and male in australia um which you know to be a little bit fair australia is part of this first generation stuff typically and um you know mallet canvas probably a you know a shining light of an example sort of outside of that group but it is and that is an absolute outlier um and um you know i think australia has a lot of work to do to really broad and, and it's missing huge amounts of opportunities as a result of not being more inclusive and diverse in the way we're backing early stage founders uh, with big visions and particularly those that are coming from diverse backgrounds. Yeah, and so if we go back to the sort of 18 or 20 year old version of yourself, looking back, what, what <laughs> advice would you give? <laughs> You've, uh, you, you know, you had an interest in sort of philosophy, the humanities, but also, like you said, you wanted to be an astronaut. You, you like maths. You know, you had an aptitude at a very young age for sort of complex maths, I imagine. So you've got these kind of not contradictory but different sort of pathways, like you said, which can be very helpful to, to have both sides. What advice would you give maybe to someone who's 18 or 20 year old 20 years old now and they do have so not conflicting interests but different things they're interested in humanities interested in maths they're curious about technology about different business um what would you sort of say to them um you know who and because they've got these different things they don't really know which direction to go where to start what to prioritize what, what would you sort of say having you know again dabbled in quite a number of different things yeah look i i think i'd be first of all very mindful of giving advice to anyone uh we all we all have our own paths to walk in life and I think it's important to walk your own path. And so, you know, you know, I can share some of my experience and what's mattered to me, but in terms of, you know, giving out advice, it's something I'd be reluctant to do because I'd, I'd encourage everyone to, to walk their own path, you know. And certainly the way that I've, I've gotten to where I've gotten to, not that I've finished, by the way, um, but, but, you know, it's not, it's not going to be the way that everyone else should get there or, or, or should aspire to get somewhere either. And so I think, you know, I'd encourage people to, to listen and learn from others but be courageous in your own path. Um, and so, you know, that's certainly, I think I've, I was naturally some of that, you know, I naturally for, for whatever reason was, you know, um, you know, designed in a way to sort of be, be courageous in my own path. And, and um, that, that served me relatively well. I think to my own self, you know, if I go back and talk to myself about what I would want to be, you know, if I had that opportunity, look, I think, some of the lessons that took me longer to learn are probably around um, the way you focus on people and treat people and, and the relationships you build. You know, it's very early. We are very um, naturally narcissistic in our, you know, late teens and early 20s by design. It's kind of an evolutionary uh, advantage at that age to be like that. Uh, I think some people break out of that faster than others and, and, and maybe I was a bit slower in some ways. And I think, you know, when all is said and done, it's, it's how you treat people and how you made them feel that you get remembered for. Um, and, you know, if I, if I had my time again and go back, I'd probably, I wish I'd learned some of that lesson. Not, you know, not, not, not that there's, you know, huge drama there, but I'm just saying, you know, I think at the, the, the longer I go about doing this, the more I realise that the relationships with people matter the most. And, and 
Um, and the way you treat, the way you make them feel, day, every day you walk into that office as a leader or as a colleague or as you know as anybody or in life with your with your family with your friends, the way you make people feel every day is fundamentally so important. And and if you can if you can make people feel a certain way every day, then the rest of it kind of works itself out. You know, if you focus on being a good person, doing the right things, and and, and leaving that legacy behind of the impact you have on the people around you then i think you know that that's that's really powerful you know then the other bit of advice is probably the, the you know some of the stuff again that i think we've managed to do okay at but you know just focusing on purpose you know f- focusing on you know, i think you asked me before around kind of the profitability the numbers and you know i think i've probably tried to articulate that stuff takes care of itself if you really if you have a clear view of a problem that you're trying to solve and it's a genuine problem you want to solve it well um, and making that your purpose and the reason for it is, is important, then the rest of it will flow through. And, and that why of why you want to do something, you can't retrofit it. Like you can't do something just because it's a good way to make money and then go back later on and try to say, actually, we, there's a purpose behind it. As, as we're seeing now with lots of companies trying to do, right? They're trying to retrofit some type of purpose on top of this entity that's existed for 30 years just to make money or 50 years just to make money. And they're now saying they're about something else. You, you actually can't unbreak the DNA of a company like that. It's got to be built, I, I believe anyway, you know, fundamentally around something first and foremost and, and, and from there. So I think, you know, if I could give myself those two bits of advice, that would be useful. And, and, you know, if anyone else is listening, I'd probably say, you know, listen and learn and take take out of that what you like and, and throw the rest away and, and forge your own path. Excellent. And just to finish us up, where does the next sort of five to 10 years at a high level, directional sort of level, look for Wiser. I mean, is a international expansion sort of the next logical step? Is it expanding the types of credit you offer while still staying true to your purpose? Um, is it technology that allows assessment, like you said, kind of assessing needs versus wants at a level where you can sort of service people in previously sort of harder to service areas of credit? Um, what are some of those sort of big picture sort of um, you know things for the rest of the decade? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I love being asked about a decade. You know, it's, it's not not a question I get from a, from a lot of people around. You know, what, what does a decade look like? You know, most people want to know what our next quarter's results look like, right? Um, I, I think there's probably a couple of things I'd start with. One is, you know, I've talked about. I think some of the influence maybe we've been able to have on this industry already by, you know, our focus on financial wellness, which, which seems to be you know catching on a little bit now, and people are starting to take that more in mind and. and Things like the way we've structured our product, like in a way no one else had ever done before, around actually not charging fees and helping people pay it off before. And we're seeing that being emulated by other businesses and other markets or in other product types. And that's that's super encouraging. So I think one of the things we'd love to see is a bit of a, you know, wiser sitting at the front end of a, of a tidal wave that happens across finance and banking. You know, we had a Royal Commission, we know all the bad, right? And and I think over a decade, if we if someone has the experience of borrowing from Wiser and they feel genuinely cared for and they feel like this is a company that I can borrow from and it's going to look after my best interests and it's going to go on the journey from me and it was whether I was successful or not in, in getting that, that loan, I got a great experience regardless and I got the ability to actually think about my financial wellness and what's going to help me. If we make that the default experience, then it would be really strange all of a sudden to go back to kind of the the current experience also. It just feels so jarring to go back and have the kind of experience you're probably getting from a standard bank today in Australia. So, you know, I think a decade from now, 
what I'd love to see is that that would just seem like ancient history to some extent, right? That experience you were getting today just feels so weird to have experience of a bank or a lender that wants to sort of take advantage of you and, and you know, um, uh, you know, may, maybe not act in your best interests all the time. Excellent. Okay, I'm just going to pause for a second. Um, yep. mate, I mean, I've got one more thing to say. I'll see if I can get it done in under a minute before this meeting. Yeah, I don't uh, know why that keeps coming up. Yeah, but, yep, sorry, if you want to segue yeah. into it. Okay. Um, look, in terms, of, in terms of the other things, you know, I think the, the key thing for us is, um, you know, I think we are a market still dominated by four big banks. You know, over the next decade, we want Wiser to really, truly emerge as the number one alternative to the big four banks. We want every single Australian to think about Wiser as being the alternative to the incumbents when it comes to, to consumer finance. You know, I think if we can achieve that goal, then we've got a very, very big business in front of us to, to build. And then that obviously necessitates more products and, and more service lines and more things that we can do for people. And doing more allows us to have more impact, which is super exciting. And then, and then beyond that, yeah, look, you know, the problems that we're solving aren't unique to Australia. You know, so we are constantly thinking about other markets and other opportunities and, and you know, that's all in our vision because if we're solving these problems, we're solving them really, really well for Australians and there's no reason we can't solve them in other markets, whether that's other markets inside Australia or other markets more broadly. So is a key metric that you sort of look at as a bit of a North Star, the kind of market share percentage of the big four? So if you see, you know, the market share shrinking of the big four, it means that people are moving away and the concentration of power and sort of experience is sort of moving or are there different metrics? Obviously, you've got your own growth and your normal sort of business metrics and customers and loan book size and stuff. But is that something you track or how do you sort of track to see if you're on mission for that, you know, to, to sort of create a new way of people engaging with financial services? Yeah, so the, look, I think, you know, the, we think a lot about impact. So what, you know, can, can we quantify the amount of impact we're having? And we can through, you know, I guess the, you know, we've written over a billion dollars worth of loans um, you know, which, which, which is a sizable impact to, to the Australian community and then growing and scaling, um, you know, at, at a rate of knots consistently. Um, you know, market, market share is an interesting one, but absolutely, you know, it's, it's nice to think about kind of our market share in this market, you know. If you think about the personal loan or the consumer finance sector, you know, we've, we've probably achieved, you know, maybe a 1% to 2% market share, right? So it's tiny, right, compared to the actual opportunity that's sitting in front of us. And that's, that's really exciting, right? You think about, you know, how big we could become, you know, we've seen in other markets, um, you know, really, really great um, digital lending alternatives, you know, go on and take 5, 10, 15, 20% market share in some markets. And so we know the opportunities there for us to still be 10, 20 times, you know, where we are today. And that, that's just in our current product suite, let alone as we start to think about broadening out our product suite and, and thinking about, you know, how else do we deliver a truly outstanding experience for customers. You know, that's probably our other, you know, key measure. We, we, we think a lot about experience. We think a lot about how we're delivering, delivering kind of a, a effective and, and truly, um, you know, demonstrably different experience for Australians when they need to access credit. You know, I think if we keep driving towards those kind of goals, then, then we're, we're on the right track. And, I mean, there's sort of the other elephant in the room is sort of the buy now pay later segment within fintech and especially sort of within australia i mean does that sort of come up in conversations when analysts investors other people because they're sort of a non-bank lender but obviously a tech fintech how does that sort of um you know fit into the broader ecosystem of sort of lending is it lending is it not obviously it's sort of its own legal 
grey zone. How do you sort of approach that sort of subset of the industry? Yeah, I think I think where where we're aligned is is you know think about credit cards as as kind of a pretty bad product, right? And it comes back to what we talked about at the beginning around how do you really structure the process. Think about a credit card product and the way the banks and it's been a big part of the big four banks kind of arsenal, right, for a long time. But fundamentally, the, the credit card book inside a bank or the credit card product only makes money when you can't afford to pay it back. So, so if you utilise that credit and you pay it back in, in the time kind of allotted for you to pay it back, nobody makes any money from you. It's only when you can't afford to pay it back and continually can't afford to pay that product back that, you know, revenue starts getting generated. Now, that's, that's a really badly designed product. Right, like that's that's actually kind of horrible in some, in some ways when you think about that as a product design. That hey, let's just make off money off the people who can't afford to pay this thing back uh, each month, and then make more and more money, and let's ramp up those rates and fees. And so I, I think I think where there is some sense of alignment of saying, hey, Australians can do better. There are better alternatives, and so you know we do a lot of debt consolidation across from credit cards and try and get people off those type of you know if someone's sitting there with five or ten thousand dollars or fifteen thousand dollars of credit card debt at 23% interest rate, that's crippling, right? So, so we really try to help them to move to a personal loan with us and, and really try and get off that cycle a bit. And look, I think I think where the buy now, pay later guys and girls have kind of started is being around thinking about, hey, this, this, this is not a great product. Let's think about tackling it in a different way and, and really just financing things at the front. So I think, you know, there's some alignment there around saying credit cards aren't a great product. You know, whether I think it's a good idea to, to um, finance cat food and, um, you know, every single T-shirt you buy and every second pair of shoes and, and, and making it necessarily that easy, particularly for younger Australians, you know, who maybe not have the wherewithal around finance and credit and what it might mean and the impact for them later in life. And I think that's going to be the interesting thing to see how it play out. You know, the bunch of 20 to 25-year-olds who, who are utilising these services a lot, does it impact their ability to then go and, you know, get a car and, and, you know, from someone like Wise, which doesn't impact their ability to go and, um, you know, buy a house at some point in the future. And so I think that that still has to play out. And let's see. And hopefully it doesn't, right? Hopefully these end up being, you know, really great products that, that stop people using credit cards. Yeah, well, it's an interesting tension where the banks used to sort of mark down people's loan applications if they use buy now, pay later. But now most of them have their own buy now, pay later. I don't know if they've changed <laughs> their perspective on that or it's, again, they're trying to have both sides of the, the coin a little bit. Um, okay, and do you have any any final thoughts to, to close on, or final words you'd like to leave the audience with? No, look, I'm in, in your capable hands. Unless there's anything else you want to you hit me with, you know, I think the the one thing for us is, you know, and for me, kind of personally, but for the whole wiser company is, we, you know, we are very much just the beginning. You know, I think we're we're, we're barely in first gear at the moment. You know, six years long long time to get here, but you know, I think we've we've built we've built the we've built the car. We've put some petrol in the tank. Uh, we've finally put it into first gear, but it's just in first gear. And so I think the next few years for us are pretty exciting just in terms of how we get to scale this thing. And when we really get into gear, it's going to be a really exciting period for us. Excellent. Thanks so much, Anthony. Thanks, mate. Good, good to chat with you. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email Derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.